Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're currently walking verse by verse through the book of 1 John. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Well, I was taught that nothing engages the mind like a question. So as we begin today, I want to ask you a question. What will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and require of you more than you want to give. What will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and require of you more than you want to give? And just for clarification, the answer is not the person sitting beside you. Let's just get that out of the way. The answer is a three-letter word. It's the word sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will require of you more than you want to give. Sin is not a topic that is often talked about in our culture. But as you read through the pages of Scripture, it is mentioned over and over and over again. As a matter of fact... Sin is referenced over 470 times in the pages of the Bible. And the Apostle John knew the importance of a person's perspective and attitude toward sin. Because he knew that that perspective ultimately revealed what a person cares the most about. And today, we're going to look at something that he shared with a group of churches that were in crisis about a biblical perspective of sin. We know the letter that he wrote to those churches, we know it as the book of 1 John. So if you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And in just a moment, we're going to read a few verses starting in verse Four. In January of this year, we began a verse-by-verse study through this New Testament book called 1 John. And we've taken a little bit of a break to celebrate Easter and cast the vision for the next campaign. But today, we are jumping back into this verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 John. If you do not know where that book is, it's towards the end of your Bible. If you still can't find it, use the table of contents. That is why it's in there, without a doubt. Let's read together 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin 
also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin, meaning Jesus. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Finally, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Some weighty verses of scripture this morning in this letter that the Apostle John wrote. So here's what I want to do in our few minutes together. I want to ask and answer three questions about sin and the believer. Sin and the Jesus follower. And here's the first elementary question, honestly, but it is extremely foundational. What is sin? What is sin? There are two words in verse 4 that are very significant. The word sin and the word lawlessness. When most people hear the word sin, they think about its meaning in Scripture. But what most people don't know is that sin is actually an archery term. And let me tell you what it means in archery. I want you to imagine here, I've got a picture of a bullseye. I want you to imagine an archer that is lined up trying to hit the bullseye. And when he releases his arrow, aiming at the very center of the target, he misses the bullseye. He misses the mark. That would be referred to as a sin. You see, sin means to miss the mark. In Scripture, it means to miss God's mark or God's standard. Sin communicates missing the mark. It communicates missing God's standard for a relationship with him. The second word in verse 4 is the word lawlessness. Now, the law that is being referred to here is not the United States Constitution. The law that's being referred to here is God's law, God's commandments that he established for creation to live according to his design. Lawlessness is willful rebellion against God to pursue one's own way. Lawlessness says, God, you may command it, but I don't prefer it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with what I want. 
It's living as if my standard is superior to God's and believing that how I want to live is ultimately up to me. That's what this word lawlessness communicates. And I want to read a statement that was written by a Puritan in the 1600s. So it's not 2017 that this statement was written. But I think you're going to hear the intensity of sin was just as real then as it is today. Look at this statement. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart. An aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, but virtually. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's a, there's a weightiness to it. Because every time we choose to engage in sin or live a life of lawlessness, it is us saying to God, I know better than you, and I don't want what you have for me. And according to Scripture, there are two very significant results of sin. When you and I choose to live in our own way versus God's way, there are really two results. One result is that sin causes spiritual death. When we think about death, we think about physical death, which is a reality. But as you read through the pages of Scripture, you see that Jesus talked way more about spiritual death than he did physical death. Here's why. Because spiritual death is eternal. Another result of sin, of us living in rebellion to God's way, is sin causes an eternal separation between us and God. You see, because God is holy, God is perfect, God is blameless, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so for those who are sinful, for those who live a life of lawlessness, we cannot be in God's presence. Every person on the planet was born with a sinful nature. We come into the world spiritually dead and separated from a relationship with God. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor, I hear you, and that's, that's pretty heavy. And I, and I get it. There are some people in the world, and yeah, they're that bad. You may even think, hey, pastor, there's some people in this room, and they're that bad. But I want you to know this. We're all that bad. Listen to this, this verse from Romans uh, chapter 3. Here's what the scripture says. For everyone has sinned. Now, if we could all open up a Greek New Testament this morning and did an exposition on that word, here's what you would find it means. Everybody. <laughs> everyone. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Here's what that means. We've all taken a shot at the bullseye, and we all missed. And because we missed, we are spiritually dead, and we are eternally separated from the God who loves us. 
But it's very important as we navigate through these verses that we understand that first foundational reality about exactly what sin is. Here's a second question for us today. What did Jesus do to deal with sin? Even sharing those things this morning with you, it's, it's heavy, it's discouraging. But now we move to a place in this text where John clarifies exactly what Jesus did to deal with the fact that all of humanity has missed the bullseye according to God's standard. And he says it in two places in this passage. Verse 5, and then he references it again at the end of verse 8. Let's look at these two verses together. This is verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to, meaning purpose, take away sins. And this is very important. And in him, there is no sin. And then at the end of verse 8, here's what John writes. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So let me give you two statements in response to this question. What did Jesus do to deal with sin? You see, sin left humanity dead and separated. But God in his love decided to make a way where there was no way. His heart was not for us to be eternally hopeless and helpless. And so God made a plan, and that plan is Jesus. Here's the first thing. Jesus came to deliver us from sin. To deal with sin, Jesus did the unthinkable. As the glorious eternal Son of God, he entered time and came to earth as God in the flesh. Jesus lived perfectly on the earth for 33 years and died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and make a way for humanity to experience complete forgiveness from what we ultimately deserve, eternal death and separation from God. You see, the only way that a sinful world can be forgiven and free is for a perfect substitute to atone for our sin. And that's exactly why Jesus came. Do you remember what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 when he saw Jesus? He said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you thankful this morning that Jesus Christ came to take away the sins of the world? Amen. But that's not all. John goes on to write this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Not only did he appear, did he manifest himself on earth to remove or take away sin, but he also came to destroy our enemy. The word destroy in verse 8 means to put an end to something. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing here, and here's what he says. For if while we were enemies, you see, because of our sin, we were made enemies of God. And I want you to know this, that is Satan's mission, that all of humanity would remain enemies of God. John chapter 10 says that the enemy has a threefold mission, steal, kill, destroy. But I want you to look at what Paul says. For while we were enemies, 
spiritually dead and separated from God for all eternity. We were reconciled, meaning brought back to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, Jesus died on the cross and he was put in a grave, but he did not stay there. He was brought back to life by the power of God. And he stands today saying, all who will put your faith in my finished work on the cross and you will put your faith in my life, I will save you, give you spiritual life for all eternity and reconcile you back to a love relationship with God. Amen. Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. John Piper wrote this in his book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. The death of Jesus was the decisive defeat of the ruler of this world, the devil. And as Satan goes, so all his fallen angels, all of them were dealt a decisive blow of death when Christ died. Not that they were put out of existence. We wrestle with them even now. But they are a defeated foe. We know we have the final victory. It is as though a great dragon has had his head cut off and is thrashing about until he bleeds to death. The battle is won. You see, the enemy is defeated. The final result has been decided, but he is still trying to destroy all that he can in the time he has left. But I want to encourage you today, as followers of Jesus, we are no longer fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. Yet this is significant. I want you to look at this reality. The victory that is ours ultimately will not be experienced daily apart from an intimate relationship with God. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, it means victory for the people of God. But the way that I walk in the victory that is mine ultimately is by a daily pursuit of an intimate love relationship with God. What I find many days in my life and maybe you find true in your life is that even though I have been given victory in Christ, some days I still walk defeated. I still walk thinking that I am who I used to be before I was born again into a life-giving love relationship with God. And here's what I found true in my life. The greatest way to combat the lies that the enemy says to me is to remember and believe what God says about me. The greatest ways that you and I can combat the lies of the enemy and what he's saying to us is to remember, to know, and believe in this book what our Heavenly Father says about us. But for many people, if we're honest, we don't really know what God says about us. And we default to believing the scheming lies of the enemy 
and walking in defeat, even though Jesus has already given us the ultimate eternal victory. For me, there are five words, and I've shared this before, but they're just, they're, they're honestly, they're daily words for me that I wrap my heart around as I move into a day knowing that even though the enemy has been destroyed by Jesus, he is not out of existence yet, and he's seeking to do all he can to disrupt God's activity in the time he has left. Five words that remind me of what Christ has done and who I am because of what Christ has done. Five words in the New Testament that give description of salvation. Redemption, justification, forgiveness, adoption, and reconciliation. I've been redeemed by Jesus. I've been justified before God and made righteous. I've been forgiven of all of my sin. I've been adopted into God's family, and I've been reconciled back into an intimate love relationship with him. And this week, as I was just praying around this talk and looking at these verses, I just sensed that there may be some people here this weekend, and you know that ultimately the victory is yours, but right now you've believed a lie in some way from the enemy, and you're walking in a sense like you've been defeated. So I wrote this that I want to just read over you just very quickly, hopefully today, to encourage you if that's where you're living. The enemy says that you are worthless, but the cross of Christ affirms that you are loved with an everlasting love. The enemy says you are unclean, but in Christ, you have been made righteous before God. The enemy says you are guilty, but the death of Christ atoned for the sins of all humanity. The enemy says you have blown it too many times for God to accept you, but in Christ, you've been adopted as a son or daughter of God. The enemy says you can't know God personally, but in Christ, you've been reconciled to an eternal love relationship with God that you can relate to him as your father. I don't know where you're at today when it comes to understanding the victory that is ultimately ours versus walking in that victory on a daily basis. But I believe the greatest way that you and I can combat the lies of the enemy that he says to us is to really understand and believe what our heavenly father says about us. Jesus came to remove and take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Here's our third and, and final question this morning. As a believer, if all that's true, what is my relationship to sin? If that's what sin is, and that's what Jesus has done to deal with sin, as a follower of Christ today, what's, what's my relationship? How do I relate to sin? And this is by far the verses that John wrote in response to this topic 
are definitely the most complex in this entire passage. He speaks to this in two different sections of this passage, verse six and then verse nine. I want us to look at that very quickly. If we can jump to that slide. This is what verse six says. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. In verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, what I did as I was studying these verses is I called a timeout because I had a couple of red flags that flew up when I read these verses. One of the flags was, how do you reconcile 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 9 with 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, which says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I read that, and then I read, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has ever seen him or knows him. I want to give you two statements and unpack them to hopefully bring some clarity to the fact that John is not contradicting himself when he writes in chapter 1, verse 8, and he writes in chapter 3, verses 6 and 9. Here's the first thing I want you to hear me say. A believer does not live a life of sin. A believer does not live a life of sin. This is one of those moments in studying scripture that if we could all read the, the, the treasure that is found in the Greek language, these verses would be a lot clearer for us. You see, the tense of the words that were written in the Greek language are extremely significant when it comes to this passage of Scripture. When I read 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 9, here's what I interpret in my mind. No one who abides in Christ can commit even one single act of sin. That's what I hear, just in my own brain. And there's a way in the Greek language, it's called the aorist tense, that John could have said that. However, that is not the tense in which he wrote these verses in 1 John chapter 3. He wrote these verses in the present active tense, meaning ongoing, continuous action. So verse 6 could literally be interpreted as this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And verse 9 can be read literally. Those born of God are not content to keep on sinning. James Montgomery Boyce said this. John is simply saying that although a Christian may sin and in fact often does sin, it is nevertheless impossible for him to go on persisting in sin indefinitely. Let me give you a phrase to describe what John is talking about in verses 6 and 9. A lifestyle of sin. And 
Here's what I mean by that. Habitually embracing a way of living that is in defiance to God and his commands. Lifestyle sin says, I know what your word says, God, but I don't believe what you said is true, and I think that I'm right and you're wrong. That's a lifestyle sin. And John is pointing out in verses 6 and 9 that if you've really been born of God, that is not your heart attitude. You've been changed. And if you say that you've been born again into a relationship with God and absolutely nothing about your lifestyle is different, have you really been changed by Jesus? You see, a believer does not live in a habitual pattern of sin. That's what he's communicating in verse 6 and verse 9. But there's another principle here I want us to think about. A believer lives a life of righteousness. He says a believer does not go on in a habitual lifestyle of sin, but here's what a believer does do. A believer does live a life of righteousness. Look at verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You see, our pursuit of righteousness is taking place while we are still living in this earthly flesh. And even though we have this earthly flesh that we deal with every day, for a believer, there should not be a lifestyle of sin, but we will struggle with acts of sin. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Occasionally, choosing to live in ways that are in opposition to God and his commands. You see, a life of righteousness doesn't mean the absence of sin. A life of righteousness means experiencing victory in the presence of a very real struggle. There's nothing about John's writing in 1 John chapter 3 that is pushing us toward sinless perfection. That's impossible. He is saying that if you are a believer, the trend of your life is going to be towards God and conformity to the image of Christ, not towards the way that you used to live your life. Danny Aiken said this well in his commentary. He said, sin no longer is the character and conduct of my life because I'm now, I now abide in Christ and in the power of his person and work in the gospel. I may fall into sin, but I will not walk in sin. Sin will not be my habit. It will not be my normal practice. I no longer love sin. I hate sin. I no longer delight in sin. I despise it. You see, being righteous, pursuing righteousness means walking away from my old life in sin and walking in my new life in you see, it's true that sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay and require of you more than you want to give. But for a believer, that does not have to be the case. You see, our life is no longer marked by sin. 
It is marked by the reality that we are forgiven, free children of God. And our direction of life is toward Christ's likeness. Listen, there are moments every day in my life when I struggle with sin. An action, an attitude, something that comes up that catches me off guard. But when those things happen, I'm not satisfied to live that way. Because the spirit of God inside of me blows a whistle and says, that's not who you are anymore. And I fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge my mistake for what it is. And I press into Christ in me. And as we conclude this morning, I want to tell you two things that I remember in those moments when I feel like I failed, I feel like I messed up, I feel like I've done wrong. Here's two things that resonate in my heart. First of all, I've been made new. Those mistakes, those acts of sin that I'll fall into, I've been made new. That's not who I am anymore. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, uh, Scripture said this, says this. This is in the J.B. Phillips translation. For if any man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. As the people of God, we've been made new. But I also want you to hear this today. We are no longer slaves to sin. At one point, sin was our master and we were controlled by it. But we've been made new in Christ, and we are a new creation all together. Look at Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you are wholeheartedly, you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Church family. You've been redeemed, justified, forgiven, adopted, and reconciled. Your eternity is secure, and your identity is in Christ. May we walk in that. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to bow your head this morning. We're going to have some time now just to respond to the voice of God. I don't know today how he's speaking to you. I don't know what's going on in the context of your life. But I want to, I want to encourage you in this moment to steal your mind, steal your heart, and listen to what your heavenly father desires to say to you. Right now in your journey, what is, what's your perspective on sin? Do you see it as something that just everybody does? Or do you see it through a biblical lens that teaches us sin is missing God's standard and there are eternal ramifications for sin? Are you thankful today for what Jesus has done to deal with sin? 
Is your heart full of gratitude because of the reality that he came and he removed sin's power and he destroyed the work of the enemy so that you and I can be forgiven and free? Maybe you're a believer here this morning and there are some acts of sin that have just been brought to your attention today. For you, you have several options. You can ignore it. You can justify it somehow. Or you can humbly approach your father and agree with him that it's sin. We're going to stand and sing in just a few moments. Maybe you'd like somebody to pray for you today. Maybe you'd like to come and just kneel here on these steps and just get before the Lord. And maybe for the first time in a long time, just be honest about some stuff that's going on in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe there's never been a time for you where you have gone before God, confessed your sin, confessed your need for him, and embraced his finished work and his life. If that's you today and you need to be saved, in just a moment when we stand and sing, we're gonna have some pastors here at the front. We would love to connect you with a volunteer who can show you from the Bible how you can be saved. And you can walk in the redemption, the forgiveness, the goodness of God in a relationship with him. Lord, these moments are precious. God, we go all week and we go at a real fast pace and there's always a lot going on. There's a lot of messages coming at us. But Lord, I cherish these moments every week that I can just set aside some time to be still and be quiet. And Lord, listen to you in the context of your family. So Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today. And God, you would give us grace to respond to you in obedience. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for the way it conforms us and shapes us. These moments are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.